One of the great things about hosting a podcast about books that features a new episode every week is that in the beginning of each season, I don't know where my reading journey will take me, but I'm game for the mystery. Joining Book of the Month is kind of the same thing. You know you're heading into new territory, and it's going to be an adventure. Book of the Month is a subscription that helps readers discover new books and helps writers by promoting emerging authors alongside established ones. Here's how it works. Each month, Book of the Month members get to choose from a curated selection of new and early release books. Your pick gets shipped right to your door, and shipping is always free. There's so much excitement knowing that one of your picks just might be that next book to make it into your top 10 most favorite books ever list. And if you like to listen to your books, there are options for you. Book of the Month just launched a curated audiobook option, and you can listen to your selection directly in the app. Here's what's in store for March. Annie Bott by Sierra Greer. Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez, plus several other titles. I chose the memoir Hereafter by Amy Lynn because I'm interested in how people deal with grief and bring their insights to the page. For a limited time, you can get your first book of the month for just $9.99 using the code CHIRP. You can sign up at bookofthemonth.com. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest who joined me via Skype is Kevin Powers, author of the poetry collection, Letter Composed During a Lull in the Fighting, and two novels, the National Book Award finalist, The Yellow Birds, and A Shout in the Ruins. Powers was born and raised in Richmond, Virginia. In 2004 and 2005, he served with the U.S. Army in Iraq. His new novel, A Shout in the Ruins, follows three generations of people in and around Richmond, Virginia. The primary time period the novel focuses on is the early 1860s during the Civil War. At the center of the story is a plantation lorded over by Anthony Laval Waugh, slave owner, tyrant, and manipulator. At the heart of the story that takes place in the 1950s is George Seldom, a man who was given up as a baby and is on a search for his heritage, a quest that takes him to the plantation where Levalois once ruled. We began the interview with Powers discussing why Richmond was a place of fascination for him and one that he wanted to write about. It's in a way a weird byproduct and you know combination of Growing up in that environment where you're you're steeped in all this history, and then the experiences that I had as a soldier coming home and you know having the knowledge of the you know the the, the terrible atrocities that were commonplace in the history of the place I grew up, but having this sort of personal reference point to illuminate it or to to reframe it in a way that I had never. I just didn't have that kind of weird context that personal experience can bring to sort of think about the subject and the history in a different way. This place that I'm that I'm writing about is kind of modeled on this plantation house that was 
you know, a ru- a, a literal ruin in my childhood, but that sort of loomed large in my imagination as a kid. And, and it had by that time, you know, sort of entered into the local mythology of, of Chesterfield County where I grew up. And, you know, I think like a lot of people, as you mature, you start asking questions about, you know, the sort of foundational stories that are told about the place where you're from. And I really just wanted to sort of probe it and, and see what came out of that. So you said that when you came back from your own service, you were thinking about war. Why why go to this civil war? And what fascinated you about that time period? Well, you know, in Richmond, it's just there. You know, it's everywhere. You know, you walk through old battlefields, the, the Civil War hospital that's that's represented in the novel is a was a was a real place and um you know now it's a park and um there's a, a street called Monument Avenue where at the major intersections they have these uh as you probably gathered from the name, these monumental statues of uh Confederate generals and um you know so in a lot of ways it's the the presence of the Civil War is inescapable. You know, I don't know. I guess part of what I was thinking about as a returning veteran was, you know, what is it? What does it mean to be an American? What are, what are, you know, what am I, what am I taking an oath to? What baggage comes with it? And to have some of that baggage right on the surface is is, is something I felt, you know, um, a kind of responsibility to think about. You know, and also, you know, it was that time period in America, and you know, I think. In some ways, we can think of that as even extending into the present day was the first time we as a nation really were asked the question of the kind of country we want to be. And obviously, in a lot of really meaningful ways, we're still asking it. So, yeah, I mean, it it just it just felt present and relevant. And um, I just, you know, there wasn't really a question to me of whether I would write it about or not. I just felt drawn to the subject. So in this story, we have, at the centerpiece, we have Anthony Lavelle Bois. He's sort of the lord of this property that he ends up somewhat unscrupulously obtaining it from this man named Bob Reed, and he marries his daughter Emily. He takes over Bob's slaves, and that is sort of the center point of the book, and from there we kind of go forward in time a little bit. Tell me about the creation of Anthony Lavalois. I guess I was thinking of, you know, in a weird way, the the kind of varieties of of evil. I I think there are there are, are are people who recognize what they are, and I think you know, in our history, we sort of sometimes we we disguise the reality of these figures, and then there are other people who are kind of contributing to this this larger force of of ill who don't recognize themselves. And so a lot of, I I guess I think a lot of these characters is existing on a kind of spectrum where Lavalois is somebody who knows what he is. And, um, you know, he kind of represents all the, you know, the forces that to some degree or another, you know, maybe I question whether they might not be in all of us, you know, ambition, greed, the desire for power, You, you know, so I just sort of, thought of this guy as a kind of as a force made into a man who would stand at the sort of far end of that spectrum. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Kevin Powers, author of a poetry collection and two novels, The Yellow Birds and A Shout in the Ruins. 
this book is so much about race. It's about slavery. It's about ownership. It's about consent and not having consent over your own life. One of the things that I found interesting with the justification for some of your characters for the existence of slavery was religion, but it was very shaky. You wrote that Lavalois did not think that his chattels were inherently different from him by constitution or that they lacked intelligence. He had seen plenty of white men lazier and duller than his best slaves, but he also took it on faith that the state of things was an expression of God's will. All through the literature, uh, you know, when I was doing research um, about the period and, and really about the various justifications, um, large-scale human bondage, I mean, religion religion was at the, the root of it. Even as slave owners would communicate to the people they enslaved, you know, when they brought their own preachers to preach, that was an emphasis, was that it was a hierarchy ordained by God. And, and, and that was a, a, a huge thread of the way they, they being the, the elite and the masters, the way they justified the organization of, of a society in that way. Uh, you know, and yeah, you know, that it's surprising, I think, to us is only natural because it, it, it seems to be the height of hypocrisy. And it is, of course. So what did you learn through the course of writing it or now in the sense that, you know, Richmond was this place that you grew up that occupied your life, that the Civil War, like shadows of it and the ruins of it were everywhere. And did you sort of start off at A and end up at B or Z when you wrote it? What did you discover? I guess one of the things I was thinking about is understanding that all of this tragedy exists on the surface, deeply buried. I mean, you can find it everywhere you look, you know, and yet it seems like there is this possibility to, to improve, to, you know, for something like love to exist. I suppose in, in a way it was, I was trying to test that idea, you know, can things get better? If, if you look at human history broadly, you don't find very many periods of harmony. And so I guess I was just asking myself, what are we, what are we working toward and, and how do we get there? I, I don't know that I have an answer, but, but what I did come away with is, is this kind of profound faith in people's better qualities to endure, to survive. I don't know. There's just a, a human resilience that I find profoundly humbling and awe-inspiring. There's some sliver of optimism that remained at the end of it that I wasn't sure would be the case, you know. The publishing industry is a system. Books are mirrors into people's experiences. And in season two of Missing Pages, we'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. 
In season two, we're turning up the dial. She was in pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired. We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't worldproof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season two wherever you get your podcasts. One of those characters that maybe had to do with resiliency on some level was you had a a character named George, and he was given up as a baby. First, he was with some natives, the Croatan. Mm Mm-hmm. And ended up being raised by this woman, but then kind of went searching for his past, which brought him to Richmond because these stories are all kind of linked in history. And he was basically searching for his history in the same way maybe that this book was searching for history. I'm just curious about his character and his journey and if he, in some level, did represent any sort of optimism for you or what he meant to you as a character? You know, I wanted him to read as, as a man, you know, to, to have quality, the qualities of an individual. But I also hoped that in some way his story and his journey might speak to something larger, you know, the journey that we're on as Americans. And, you know, in, in, in my case, I thought of him as kind of the, he's in some ways the ultimate Virginian, you know, He's representative in in a lot of ways of of what I think of as as a a person who might be able to speak for for Virginia and Virginia's place in the history of our country. And um, so he's discovering where he comes from and and what it means to come come from the place that he comes from. And, you know, yeah, I mean, I hope that people might see a parallel between his story and, you know, our, our collective story, our, our desire to to kind of understand the roots and, and the significance and responsibilities that come with understanding those roots. Violence does take place in the Civil War. We see some really violent scenes. We see people losing limbs and being their heads being bashed in. We see the violence between a master and a slave, between a, a man and a woman. And it's Violence is a very intimate act, and I'm wondering about writing violent scenes and what that was like for you and what you wanted to convey with the violence aside from the violence. I mean, I guess what I was getting at and what I want people to come away with is it is a kind of intimacy, a a tragic, misshapen intimacy, but you know, when you think back through history and the history of the place that I'm writing about, I mean, it's, it's, it's real and extensive. I think sometimes there, there can be a tendency to describe violence, uh, not sentimentally, but, but as a way of um, depicting the thing that someone overcomes. And then you, you celebrate that. And, and, and that can become kind of sentimental in a weird way. And, you know, it can be romanticized. And so I just wanted to make sure that I was honest to the reality of of the times and the kinds of things that people will do to one another. You know, I thought, you know, if I can be honest about this, this question that I'm asking, 
you know, what's still possible, uh, even if we account for all of this terror and tragedy, what's still possible in terms of, of grace or love or goodness or whatever, then I could ask that question honestly. You know, if I didn't deny, if I didn't romanticize, then I could approach that question honestly. You know, and it's it's appropriately uncomfortable writing those scenes. Um, it's not a place I like enjoyed uh, spending a lot of time in or thinking about. But you know, I I, I guess when I I don't want to sound grandiose about it or anything, but you know, you're trying to tell the truth. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Kevin Powers, author of a poetry collection and two novels, The Yellow Birds and A Shout in the Ruins. Do you think because you have been deployed with the military and seen war, it makes it different for you to approach that, like if you thought about the person you were before you went and saw those things, do you think that changed anything in you as a person or a writer? I think, yeah. I mean, I think seeing it as a kind of of intimacy is is maybe not. I'm not, I'm not claiming that that's an original idea by by any means, but it's not probably an idea I would have come to um, without having been in, in circumstances where I kind of understood what that that terrible intimacy can look like and the effects that it can, that it can have not just on individuals, but on whole communities and swaths of societies. And um, yeah, just to see it as a, as a thread of, of humanity worthy of, I don't know, probing or investigating and, and being as honest as one can when writing about it is probably more important to me because of the experiences that I've had. Yeah, there's this concept of, you know, epigenetic trauma, this this sort of idea that maybe if you were a Holocaust victim or maybe you were a slave, that the kind of trauma you experienced, you actually hand down through on a cellular level to your offspring. And one of the things that your novel does is you follow generations of people so we're in the 18, late 1800s, 1860s during the war, but we end up in the 1980s with some of these characters' relatives. What was the impetus for you to do three generations of people, and what did you want to explore by doing that? Well, some of it was trying to describe and trying to illustrate that even though it's obvious certain things change, that sometimes that, that transformation or, or things just take on a different form. So one of the kind of inciting events in the book is George's home is slated for demolition because the, the powers that be want to uh, build a section of interstate through his neighborhood. And so you think of that as being just kind of on a continuum with some of the other, I mean, it, 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 you know, it's less immediately violent. But it still, I think, falls into the category of violence. And so it exists on that continuum. And to go forward, you know, with Lottie and Billy in the 80s, one of the things I wanted to do with them, apart from show people who were not explicitly, but, but try to show how two people could sort of have all of that weight of history within them and see what happens when they came together but also show 
that these, you know, that this, this temporal distance we create in our minds, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm assuming a lot by saying we, but um, I'll say this, this kind of distance, this historical distance that we create in our minds is, a, I think, as a kind of coping mechanism, as a, as a, as a mechanism to find some kind of comfort to allow ourselves. Obviously, I'm talking mainly about about white people, but um, to allow ourselves to to not feel complicit that you know I think that distance is is kind of an illusion. You know, I was born in 1980. I grew up in the 80s, and not to say that um, you know these tragedies were were ongoing ongoing in the same way, but that their presence was still palpable in, in some ways. And so I imagine, especially for somebody like like Billy and somebody like Lottie who's connected to the past and uh, Billy who has his own um, history of, of violence and trying to sort of recover from the consequences of violence that they would maybe allow the readers to see that we haven't traveled as much distance as we we think we have and, and let readers ask whatever questions they they might draw from from that idea. Someone in history is assigned to sort of pick up the pieces. And in your novel, that person was Tom Fitzgerald. He was a colonel that came to the territory to try to say, hey, you know what? Slaves are free now and you got to change your ways. But it's not like, you know, one day a law passes and everything changes. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I mean, if you read, um, there's a great history of Reconstruction uh, uh, phoner. And if you, if you read that book, you'll just see that there was some progress made, but, but in a lot of ways, the effort was just impotent and reshaping society in that way was, was so, it was so ingrained, you know, it, as we talked about earlier, even down to the way that, that religion played into the justification of it all. And so, yeah, he's in some ways the most impotent and helpless person in the book because surely he sees what's happening you know but but i i suspect he recognizes the futility of it all or maybe that's maybe the not that the conclusion to be drawn is that it's futile but but i think that's what he sees the situation as you're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Kevin Powers, author of a poetry collection and two novels, The Yellow Birds and A Shout in the Ruins. I also want to say that although there is a lot of violence in this story, I feel like it ends with hope. I think I'm, I'm an optimist by nature, and one of the things about writing is... In telling stories, it, it allows me to to test that optimism, to, to kind of make sure that I'm keeping it in check, that I'm not being naive or succumbing to to wishful thinking. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I think there's hope at the end. I do. And do you feel hope for our society now, since we're still experiencing many of the same pains? You know, having having just said that, I always want to test it. I, I just don't know what I don't know what it would look like to let go of it, you know, and I'm not ready to let go of it yet. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yeah, sure. Um, so a, a poet that I 
I really love is um, Larry Levis. And uh, most of his poems are really long. So I'm just going to read um, just the kind of closing lines of, of one that is one of my favorites. Um, it's called Elegy with a bridle in its hand. And uh, it's about sort of two horses. And so these are the last uh, several lines of it. And in the years that followed, he would watch them in the back stretch of the far turn at Santa Anita Del Mar. Watch the way they made it all seem effortless. Watch the way they were explosive and untiring. And then watch the sun fail him again and slip from the world and watch the stand slowly empty. As if all moments came back to this one, inexplicably to this one, out of all he might have chosen. Heaven with ashes in its hair and filling what were once its eyes, this one with its torn tickets littering the aisles and the soft racket the wind made, this one, which was his. And if the voice of a broken king were to come in the dust and whisper to the world, that grandstand with its thousands of empty seats, who among the numberless you have become desires this moment, which comprehends nothing more than loss and fragility and the fleeing of flesh. He would have to look up at the quickening dark and say, me, I do, it's mine. Tell me about choosing that. Well, there's just something about Larry Levis's ability to, you know, to get it at, at mystery by examining the sort of quotidian and, um, you, you know, we talked earlier, you know, violent, uh, finding the holy and, and the spiritual, and, and he seems to, at least for me, his writing, his poems, provide an access to that in a way that uh, a, a lot of other writers haven't. I mean, a lot of other writers have, of course, but but he just, I don't know, I just feel a special connection to his work, and, and that's that's a poem that the first time I, I read it, I was just overwhelmed by it, and um, and I, and I still am. I would certainly encourage people to read the entire poem and, and some of his other ones. But uh, but those closing lines, it just sort of, I don't know, this, this idea that you can sort of claim a, a kind of participation in the mystery, you know, that me, I do, it's mine, you know, that uh, we get to be present in that is, is something that I think is really, really cool. Can you read a passage that you wrote, maybe it was hard or tricky or changed a lot from the first draft. Um, yeah, do you mind if I, I'm just going to read a poem, if that's okay. It's pretty short. Sure. Uh, um, yeah, it's called Letter Composed During a Lull and the Fighting. I tell her I love her like not killing or 10 minutes of sleep beneath the low rooftop wall on which my rifle rests. I tell her in a letter that will stink when she opens it of bolt oil and burned powder and the things it says. I tell her how Private Bartle says offhand that war is just us making little pieces of metal pass through each other. Tell me about choosing that. Um, you know, I, I think, I mean, it was hard. It's all, <laughs> it's all hard. I don't find any of it easy. But, um, you know, asking something that, um, 
I don't know, I can kind of look back on most of, you know, my relationship to most of the stuff that I write after any given period of time is, I don't know, the ceiling very often feels like ambivalence. And uh, I don't know, you like sometimes, I, I imagine a lot of writers feel this way. You know, there's this feeling of like, I got close to what I wanted to do, but maybe it was, you know, however many degrees off. And uh, that poem, I mean, I, you know, I, I feel like it's the closest I've gotten to what was in my head when I set out to write it. And so I, I still feel a lot of satisfaction that it turned out the way that I hoped it would. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Kevin Powers, author of a poetry collection and two novels, The Yellow Birds and A Shout in the Ruins. Where do you write? Uh, we have a, a spare bedroom at, at our house. I turned into an office, and um, it's kind of like half of the attic. And uh, so I work up there. I work at, I work at my house. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Um, well, I have two young children at home, so I, 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 uh, I spend time with them as much as possible. And then when I'm able to, I like to get outdoors, so I'll hike or camp in the summer and um, hunt in the fall. And uh, yeah, last summer I went up to the Gunnison area in Gunnison Basin and spent some time up there and that's a place I, I would definitely like to get back to. So, yeah, if I'm not working and I'm not with my family, I like to be outside. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I try to wait as far into the process as I can before I show anybody anything. But um, the first person I send it to is my friend uh, Shamala Gallagher, who's a really great poet. Um, and she's just an extraordinary reader. She has this knack for seeing what I'm trying to do, even when I'm not doing it well, uh, which is a, a, a gift that not everybody has. Um, we went to the University of Te- Texas together. And so, yeah, I mean, ever since we were in class together, I've asked her to read just, just a, I mean, just about everything I've ever written. I think she's she's seen it at one point or another. Yeah, I mean, I've come to depend on her insights. How have you dealt with rejection? Uh, I don't know, poorly probably, but... Um, well, just I guess as an example, so the first uh, agent that I sent the manuscript of the Yellow Birds had some rather unkind things to to say about it and its prospects, and uh, you know, of course, I was despondent and really shaken up. And um, uh, thankfully, my my wife my wife was there, and she I had a list of of names of people that I was was going to send it to. And in the midst of, I mean, immediately after I got this, this, uh, rejection notice that was fairly harsh. She, she told me to, to send, you know, get up and send it to the next person on the list. And so I try to, um, you know, when I, when facing rejection, I try to, to, to just kind of do the next uh, piece of work that's in front of me. And there's plenty of time to feel like crap, you know? So what is your favorite word? Grace, probably. I, um, you know, I like words, words best when they're put together well. But if I had to pick one, it would be grace. It's a it's a hard quality to, to, to define, but you know, when you see it in a person, at least for me, it's something that I really admire. And then, in you know, the sort of other 
larger and probably older meaning of the world. It's something that um, I sort of ask the universe for on a regular basis. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest who joined me via Skype was Kevin Powers, author of a poetry collection and two novels, The Yellow Birds and A Shout in the Ruins. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.